ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, why don't we have clearer numbers on metastatic cancer? And speaking of cancer that's advanced or a tumour that's rare, there's new hope thanks to an Australian project offering gene analysis to people with such tumours to see if there's a matching treatment that you can participate in a clinical trial. Plus the best exercise if you want to reduce your blood pressure. Make sure there's a wall nearby so you can try it out. It's not oh, I fun. can't wait for that one. Well, it's not fun. Well, anyway, we'll try it. <laughs> uh, but first, Norman, so look at some of the big health news this week. And one thing that happened over the last few days is the US Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell had a very public turn. He froze mid-sentence at a press conference and there was a lot of speculation about whether it was a stroke or epilepsy, which we won't add to, but it does act as a reminder. What should you do if you're with someone who has an episode like this? Yeah, well, look, I will speculate a little bit, but because it was so, <laughs> was so, public, was so public, <laughs> I haven't got into trouble for speculating before in different public, people's diseases. But look, this was there to be seen. And the likelihood is, I mean, I think if a neurologist saw this, they think this is epilepsy. Um, it's called an absence seizure or a partial seizure or a petit mal episode where you just go blank. And if you watch him closely, he wasn't sure where he was when he came round. Um, so he wasn't sure what had happened to him, and he was led away, and he came back later. That's kind of that's kind of the sign of an uh, of an, ep- an epileptic kind of seizure. The question with him is, well, well, you know, what caused it? Because this is a common if, that, if that's what it was. This is much commoner in children than adults. Now he had a head injury a, a little while ago, quite a serious one from the sound of it. That could cause epilepsy if you had a serious brain injury. Um, epilepsy could cause the fall. So, I mean, these are complicated stories. Or rarely something like this could be um, the sign of a stroke, although you'd have to put your money on epilepsy with this case. Well, the main reason we're talking about it, you're quite right, is what do you do if you have this episode? If you have an episode like this um, for the first time as an adult, you need to get checked up. And you need to get checked up reasonably urgently. So, the safest thing to assume is that it might have been a stroke and go to the nearest emergency department in an ambulance so they can check you out and see. Even though the balance of evidence would suggest in this case it was epilepsy, the safest thing to assume that it might be a, a short-lived stroke because it could progress. And a year or so ago, and we'll put the link on the Health Report's website, we had a story on this that you should stop talking about these as transient ischemic attacks, in other words, short episodes of absence of blood to the brain. These are strokes with permanent damage and need to be followed through. And if you have an epileptic seizure of some kind for the first time as an adult, you definitely need to be checked up pretty quickly just to see what's going on in your brain. It could be a benign tumour, it could be a malignant tumour. I don't want to panic people. Or it could just be uh, you know, a head, from a head injury or out of the blue. But it needs to be sorted out at speed. Absolutely don't sit on it. And then another high-profile person for a different reason, um, molecular biologist from the University of Wollongong, Justin Yerbury, died over the weekend um, from motor neurone disease, which was the disease that he devoted his academic career to researching. Yes, I mean, such an emotional occasion, and but a, a time to reflect on somebody devoting himself to 
research the condition that he actually had. And he started before he had the disease, but it ran in his family, which is a, you know, a really unfortunate disease with there's only one drug available and it's probably not that effective. And he was a molecular biologist and he studied what could be going on at a molecular level in this disease. Is it an abnormality of how it deals with proteins and all sorts of other issues. So he was across all that, researching it and researching it with the commitment of somebody who personally knows the damage this disease causes and wanted to prevent it in others. It's a huge loss to the Australian scientific community. Yeah, and interestingly, he and his wife wrote a paper on what it's like to be, the attitude towards disabled people being medical researchers and that, you know, that it's not an easy track. People, yeah. people think that, um, you know, there is stigma and prejudice attached to the disability and you don't necessarily get recognised as an equal. Absolutely. We'll put a link to that paper on our website as well. It's a good read. Uh, and if you've ever had a brush with cancer, you'll know that one of the biggest dreads around it is, will it come back? Metastatic cancer, where the original cancer spreads to other parts of the body, is an especially devastating diagnosis as, in many cases, it's treatable but not curable. And yet there's no nationally consistent way of keeping track of how many cancer patients go on to develop metastatic cancer, which is something that is being discussed at a roundtable in Canberra this week. And among the people advocating for change are representatives from Breast Cancer Network Australia. Lisa Tobin has been living with metastatic breast cancer for 11 years after her initial cancer diagnosis 23 years ago. I spoke to her earlier today. It was an absolute shock to be diagnosed with metastatic. I had no idea how it would present. I always did my annual mammograms and ultrasounds because I was diagnosed very young at 35. I kept up the ultrasounds because the younger you are, the denser breast tissue is. And I had no other symptoms. It was an absolute shock. Tell me about why you're involved in this campaign to get metastatic breast cancer more consistently counted. It's important to me because I feel that with the metastatic cohort, we're sort of lost in the sea of pink. There's so much publicity and knowledge around early breast cancer, but there is not with metastatic breast cancer. And we no longer want to be hidden in plain sight because we're out there, but we don't know how many truly is out there because there is no registry currently that counts how many people nationally are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Is there anything that you've noticed in your care that you think might have been different or better if there were more solid numbers around how many people have metastatic breast cancer? I think in the care, if there was better knowledge generally, and I'm talking in the public, but also with the clinicians, that the signs to look for, that we don't normally always go through the same process as an early breast cancer person who would traditionally end up in hospital and that's where they get captured by all the services, whereas we have a test and end up normally with an oncologist. A lot of people tend not to find any of that psychosocial services or be captured by even the breast cancer nurses that are based in hospitals. I didn't even know that there was a nurse at my hospital for a very long time. I had to go and find my own breast cancer services. Even though it's 11 years since my diagnosis with metastatic, people are still struggling to go and find those services. 
Why do you think metastatic breast cancer or metastatic cancer is getting lost? Is it people don't want to think about it, don't want to think about the fact it could happen? Yes, I think that people are scared of it. And a lot of people, and, and myself, you know, when you're in primary cancer, you're scared, oh, is it going to come back? But I had no idea what that meant. And I think people need to be more educated about it so they know what to look for. It is scary to talk about because it is treatable, but it is not curable. That's the part that I think is really hard to make a peace with. It is. People don't understand. They always say, oh, when are you finishing treatment? I will never finish treatment. Treatment will finish when basically I've passed away. I just think making it count and making it more visual or making it more known out in the public will take away that stigma, hopefully, and that not all of us look sick and people tend not to understand that we're going through treatment, things are not great, we do have horrible side effects, but just because we have our hair at the moment it doesn't mean that we're not going through something. We recently lost a lady. She used to always ask me, are we going to be counted? I wish she was here to know that we were actually getting started on it. That's Lisa Tobin there who has lived experience. And Vicky Durston is with Breast Cancer Network Australia and joins us now. Hi, Vicky. Hi, how are you? Good. I was shocked to hear BCNA say that we're not counting metastatic cancer properly in Australia because it it must be being tracked somehow. What is the picture at the moment? Yes, well, what we know is that we actually, we don't have a national picture. So, we actually don't know how many people are living with metastatic breast cancer because they're not consistently counted across our cancer registries across the country. And so, if someone comes in with uh, primary cancer and then they have treatment and then go off and then later develop metastatic cancer, it's not being counted, although perhaps if someone was coming in quite late in the piece, it would be captured. Is that correct? Yeah. So, what we know through our cancer registries is when someone's first diagnosed with a cancer, they're captured and mortality data is also captured. So, when someone dies, but what we don't know is the stage. So, metastatic breast cancer will be often staged at stage four or advanced cancer, but we don't we don't consistently nationally capture that data. So, in, in turn, that makes it very difficult to understand who they are, where they live, and they have very different challenges to people with an early breast cancer diagnosis. And so, it is happening somewhere, it's not happening other places. Well, you've got this roundtable coming up on Wednesday this week. What are you actually calling for? Yeah, so look, they're counted in some, some states, but not others. I suppose what we're calling for is national leadership. We actually want to see some commitment and prioritisation for this, for this area. And so what we're hosting is a national roundtable in Canberra on Wednesday, where we're starting to see momentum and appetite for change for those working within the sector. And there's also some of those bigger cancer registries that are progressing in this space. They've got those insights that they can share and bring to that roundtable so we can actually start um, building some consensus in the sector about where we want to start to see change. Why, why is it important? Oh, it's so important so that we have visibility of this particular cohort because they have very distinct needs. 
they're on people with metastatic breast cancer are on lifelong treatments. They're, um, you know, the, the whole idea is to aim to slow progression and manage symptoms. But if we don't know how long they're living for and we don't know um, where they are or how many there are, how can we ever plan and provide the care and services and policy reform that's needed to support this particular population? You have done some modelling to guess how many people are having are living with metastatic breast cancer. What is it showing? Yeah, so last year BCNA partnered with researchers to use the modelling available to us where there was um, an estimated of a pro- estimation of approximately 10,500 people living with metastatic disease. We know that to be an underestimation. Um, but, I mean, even then it became quite obvious to us that we actually don't know. And without improving access to data, uh, across this country, we're never be, we're, we're never going to be able to plan for them effectively. You're obviously with BCNA. You represent people with breast cancer, but it's not just breast cancer that's calling for this. Absolutely. If we can actually build some consensus. Um, with cancer agencies and with our registries around the country, researchers, uh, hopefully, you know, what we can do is support change and really move towards that greater recognition that data really does inform and enable planning and service delivery. How did you get interested in this, Vicky? Oh, look, certainly from my experience as a, a nurse for 30 years working in uh, in cancer care, uh, this has been a long-time passion of mine to ensure that uh, those people are visible, they're counted, um, and that they get the care that they need. And I think that if we can get the data to inform how we actually care for these people, I think uh, it will um, take us a long way forward in this country. Curious to see how you go on Wednesday, Vicky. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Vicky Durston is Director of Policy, Advocacy and Support Services at Breast Cancer Network Australia. And women with breast cancer that spread are probably more fortunate. It's, it's not, not, not a good thing to be saying, but they're more fortunate that this, that tumour has more treatment options available than probably almost any other tumour, even though it's not a good idea, not good to be getting spread. Mm. But their issue is that there are, Tegan, as you know, other, other cancers, rare cancers, tumours which are hard to treat, such as pancreas, ovary and soft tissue sarcomas, where it's a, it is a challenge, not to say that it's not a challenge in breast cancer. So it's a challenge to find new treatments, sometimes for relatively small numbers of people, and then perform clinical trials to show if the therapy has a meaningful effect. A consortium of Australian cancer researchers has just announced a program offering, at this stage, 23,000 Australians with advanced or rare cancers the chance to be genetically profiled to see if there's a treatment match and then to enter a clinical trial. It's called the PROSPECT initiative, standing for Precision Oncology Screening Platform Enabling Clinical Trials. It's led by Professor David Thomas, who's Chief Executive Officer of OMICO, the Australian Genomic Cancer Medicine Centre. He's also the inaugural director of the Centre for Molecular Oncology at the University of New South Wales and head of the Genomic Cancer Medicine Lab at the Garvin Institute in Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, David. It's nice to be back, Norman. So which, specifically, which cancers and people qualify to get their genomes done in in this program? Basically, anybody who has an advanced cancer that's become incurable is eligible to take part. At the moment, we're focusing on people with solid organ cancers, 
But we'd like to think that in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, we could start to open the program out to hematological malignancies as well. Now, often people... You know, treatment teams give up. They say, oh, well, if you, once it's spread, particularly in some cancers like pancreas and ovary, there's nothing left and people feel left without hope. And yet there's been some spectacular discoveries when you actually study the genes that are going wrong here. It's really quite incredible. People should take heart from the fact that we're right in the middle of the most exciting revolution in cancer care in my lifetime and probably the most significant change in 170 years, just to put that into perspective, since the light microscope was developed. Um, big yes, call. And, uh, big call. Yes, and I can defend it. I'm happy to defend it too. So give me an example of some success stories. I mean, is this the, first of all, when people volunteer for this study, for this program, do they get their full genome done? Because often nowadays, if you go into cancer care, they'll do... Uh, if you like a screening profile of maybe 300 genes, because they know those 300 genes have a treatment attached to them. Is this a full genome analysis of their, of the, that they're having? No, it, this is a comprehensive genomic panel of about 450 genes and also fu fusion RNA transcripts in the tumour. We do have a program that involves whole genome, but that's taking a blood sample to try and work out why people under the age of 40 ever get a cancer. So give me some some stories of success here. Yes. Well, look, um, we've published several of these over the past few years, but probably you mentioned pancreatic cancer, uh, Norman, and um, as you know, it's got about a 9% five-year survival, which has barely shifted over the past 30 years. Dreadful disease. Um, and uh, we had a patient who came in uh, maybe two years ago and had the profiling done. She had advanced pancreatic cancer, and we identified a rare fusion involving the gene NRG1. Uh, it's a rare fusion in general. Um, and when you say fusion, what do you mean? I mean when a mutation in the cancer genome occurs that links one gene to another to create a fusion gene between two genes that are otherwise quite separate. And then what was the treatment implication from that? Well, there's a drug that's been developed to target a gene called HER3, and this gene, NRG1, seems to regulate the function of HER3. So uh, one of the trials that we're supporting, uh, we've supported over the past few years, has tested the activity of this anti-HER3 drug against uh, patients with NRG1 fusions. And this patient was... Uh, patient zero, so to speak. We actually, uh, it was almost like an N of one trial, actually. Um, we had the trial due to open, but not soon enough for this patient. We got access on a compassionate basis to the drug, and she had a response. The tumor shrunk. And uh, that uh, is kind of proof of principle that if you don't look, you won't find, and if you don't find, you can't treat. So, But one of the bends of patients' lives is that they might get one of these mutations, but there's no clinical trial open for them to register on and they're left to flounder. So yes. what's the guarantee that if you have a treatable mutation that you'll actually get treated and be put on a clinical trial? Uh, that's an excellent question. That's what we're totally focused on in Prospect. Um, well, so the, what, a fact that you might find interesting is that 37.5% of the patients we've screened over the past six or seven years, that's 8,000 patients now, have had a, a good druggable target where there's good evidence that we'll get a doubling of survival if we can treat the patient. 
And only a fraction of those patients have actually gone on to treatments because of limitations in clinical trials around this country. Uh, seven or eight percent of cancer patients actually go on to trials. That's a woefully low number when you think how important access to drugs through those trials is. Well, you're creating hope. That's what, right. what, can you deliver if, on the 23,000 here that they will go on a trial? Yes. So the 23,000 patients is the number who will be screened. Our objective is to put at least 2,500 of those patients onto a match therapy. That's our goal. It's uh, not quite as high as we would you know, ideally like, but it's a good stepping stone. And we think it'll provide hope to um, those patients as a prospect for improved survival. And you talked about N of 1 trials, which means that you're your you're own control, if you like. Um, I sometimes wonder whether oncologists are too obsessed with clinical trials here. If you've got a universally fatal cancer and there's a treatable target, why shouldn't you get it? Why do you have to wait until there's a clinical trial? Well, because some of these drugs are very new. Um, you know, you think about lung cancer. 20 years ago, there were no targeted therapies. Now 60% of lung cancer patients have drugs for one of 11 different targets, and those drugs have been shown to extend survival. Um, that's come through trials, and there are more drugs underway. There are about 850 oncology drugs in development, 91% being designed against a target that we can identify, hopefully, by screening. And how do people get on these, this, onto this pr program if they think they qualify? Uh, reach out to me. I'm happy to be contacted directly or uh, type in omico.com.au, and we will arrange for the team to uh, tell you how to get onto the program. And we look forward to seeing the results. David, thanks very much. You're very welcome, Malcolm. Uh, Norman, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Professor David Thomas is Chief Executive Officer of Omico, the Australian Genomic Cancer Medicine Centre, and we'll have a link to that on our website because you're with the Health Report. Many years ago on the Health Report, we covered one of the first studies ever to be done showing that regular aerobic exercise reduced blood pressure. That was from the Baker Institute in Melbourne, who've also shown that resistance training works for preventing progression to diabetes in people at risk of metabolic disease. But since those studies, new kinds of exercise programs have emerged. For example, HIT, high-intensity interval training. A group of researchers has updated the evidence on what kinds of exercise are best for lowering blood pressure and have reviewed the combined evidence from 270 randomised clinical trials with over 15,000 participants overall. Jamie Edwards was the lead author and a researcher at Canterbury Christchurch University in the UK. Welcome to The Health Report, Jamie. Thank you for having me. What exercises were studied in these trials? Yes, so we looked at several different primary modes. Those primary modes were, like you say, HIIT, high-intensity interval training, aerobic exercise training, which is obviously our traditional, resistance training like weightlifting, a combination of resistance and aerobic training as recommended in guidelines, and isometric exercise training, our static form of training. So you better describe isometric. So this, um, is, wall, so this is wall squats... Yes, so the three sub-modes underneath isometrics in this work are the wall sit or the wall squat, um, as we call it, um, which involves sitting with your back against the wall on a, on a pretend chair almost, hand grip isometric, so you're gripping something, squeezing something in your hand, and leg extension, which obviously involves extending your leg against a fixed uh, surface. And why didn't you look at things like V-sit holds, which are also isometric, and planks, which are isometric? Yeah, the, the nature of this work as a meta-analysis, it just involves basically scouring what exists. And there weren't any of, trials uh, of planks? Uh, 
Exactly, yeah. And then there are no trials of different modes of exercise and there needs to be a substantial number of trials, at least reasonable, to pull the data effectively and make sure they all fit the same criteria so you're not analysing you know, studies of varying different methodologies and so forth. So the reason we've spent a lot of time describing isometric exercises is that one came out on top, not by much, by about a head uh, from other forms of exercise. Just give us a sense of the league table here in terms of effectiveness at blood pressure reduction. Yes, so from the pairwise analysis, so isometric ranks up on top as a primary mode for both systolic and diastolic. So it produced mean reductions in systolic by 8.24, so, so about 8 if we round it up, and diastolic by 4. And just to explain, um, that's the top number and the bottom number in your blood pressure measurement. Exactly. So systolic is obviously the higher number and diastolic the lower number, systolic being when the heart beats and diastolic when the heart relaxes, for instance. And this is um, in people then, with high blood pressure or normal blood pressure? So this is a combination of all, and we did a sub-analysis as well where we separated out the data between high, medium, and, and, and normal blood pressure, or pre-hypertension and normal blood pressure, and so that breakdown of the data is available in, in the study. And close behind was running. Yes, yeah, so, so particularly for diastolic blood pressure, so these are when we broke the data down into sub-modes, so obviously running would fit into aerobic as a broad category, and then we broke But there's something more to running, there's something comprehensive about running, which shows through in different yeah. data sets for different diseases. No, absolutely. And, and that's what we say is isometrics produces substantial magnitude of blood pressure reduction. But things like running and our traditional aerobic have wider physiological benefits when you think of things like aerobic capacity and things that are also very predictive of longevity. And what about the exercise program of the moment, HIT, high intensity interval training? Yep. So HIT's obviously emerging. It's, it's, it's becoming massive and um, has substantial implications for cardiometabolic health. And thinking about things like adherence, that's one of the main problems, obviously, is we know exercise modes work in, in many domains of risk factors for, for longevity. But getting the population to adhere to these kind of exercises is the, is the thing. And so um, high-intensity interval training is a lot more time efficient and potentially practical. And so that's kind of where the push there so is. So why should isometric exercise come out on top? What is it about that exercise that might affect blood pressure? Yes, it's a complex area and it's developing. The mechanistic data is still being explored. But essentially, on an acute level, what we think happens, and we studied this a lot in the lab, is when you perform an isometric hold, whether that be a wall sit or whether that be a squeezing a hand grip dynamometer, it's actually By the way, you showed that that wasn't that, that effective. From your data, it's not that effective as an isometric exercise. It's really the wall squat that works. Wall squat is most effective, but it's worth considering that hand grip is still more effective than the majority of other modes. But certainly the wall squat as a magnitude is the most effective. That and leg extension exercise come out on top, and that's probably due to the amount of the mass of muscle involved in the, in the unique mechanism. And when I say unique mechanism, I mean when you're holding that kind of static that grip or, or the squat, you're compressing the local vessels in that area to some degree and, and causing a semi-ischemic state almost. So what's and then the on release of that? Yeah. Then you get dilatation of the blood vessels and blood pressure lowering. What does? So how often you got to do this to get an effect? Yes, so current protocol suggests three times a week, um, 14 minutes a session. So you, you would perform a hold for four times for two minutes. God with, almighty, uh, Jesus. Yes. That's one of the things about it is pe people see this as a, as a quick win. But when you do these sessions, you realize it's taxing, it's challenging, and no exercise is, is really easy. Most of us do mixed training. Well, I'll speak personally. I go and I'll do aerobics, and then I'll do muscle strengthening, which has an aerobic element to it. And I might do a plank at the end or a wall sit at the end for a couple of minutes at a time. 
If you looked at that mixed training, which is what most people do, I presume it has some effect on your blood pressure, just not as much as isometrics. No, absolutely. And, that, and that's where the combined training as a primary mode was looked at and it was second most effective and it was not too far behind isometrics. So we know traditional exercise in terms of, like you say, doing a mix of some aerobics and some resistance training is you know, massively beneficial. And obviously it has wider benefits for, for muscle health and, of course, you know, things like aerobic capacity. And so this is just focusing on blood pressure, but there are wider elements to physiological health that need to be considered. It's a bit daunting thinking about how much I'd actually have to do, but I think I'll just stick with the process at the moment, Jamie, and look forward to your next research when you bring back the evidence. Thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you for having me. Jamie Edwards is at Canterbury Christchurch University in the UK, and we'll have a link to that study on The Health Report website. But that's it for this week. Yeah, I'm off to do anything except a wall sit. <laughs> we'll see you next Monday. Yeah. And my planks are not to be beheld with any degree of praise. <laughs> see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.